Scientists have identified the key ways in which we humans are destroying the ecosystems on which we depend. Is there climate change? Yeah. I mean, will it change back? Probably, that's what I think. How dare you? The British Conservation Alliance was launched by students in the United Kingdom to advocate for market-based environmental reforms. You should be empowered to deal with those problems. Lebanon, Poland, Spain, the US, the UK, Austria. It's just really cool seeing all these people gather to talk about these ideas when we weren't doing this a year ago, and we're doing it now. We can begin to defend the Earth against the disaster of global warming. The Green Market Podcast. Hello, I'm Luke Warren, host of the Green Market Podcast, a show from the British Conservation Alliance in association with the Austrian Economic Centre and Cedargold that focuses on market environmentalism, ESG and impact investing, and the application of the Austrian School of Economics in tackling climate change and achieving our environmental ambitions. Environmentalism has long been on the political agenda, but has increasingly come to the forefront of the minds of policymakers, individuals and business leaders. The debate has shifted from being one between those who believe in climate change and those who deny it, to what are the best ways to tackle it and promote conservation. But this debate has often been dominated by particular groups. Take, for example, Extinction Rebellion, which utilises often controversial tactics to convey its message. While such tactics do garner widespread attention, free marketeers have advocated realistic solutions that have been adopted, such as fishing quotas and privatised fishing rights. But it is not enough to simply provide solutions. A real shortcoming of those who argue for market-based solutions is the failure to gain the same media and public attention that groups such as Extinction Rebellion enjoy. Today's episode will thus look into why pro-interventionist environmentalists have the loudest voice in the environmental debate, why marketeers have thus failed to gain similar success, and how best to communicate pro-market environmentalist ideas. Today I am joined by William Young, Sam Hall and Isabella Gornell. Sam Hall is the director of the Conservative Environment Network, an independent forum, parliamentary caucus, and membership organization for conservatives who support conservation and decarbonisation. Isabella is the managing director of Seahorse Environmental, chair of UK 100, and co-founder of the all-party group on sustainable finance. William Young is the director of Bloomberg NEF, a research provider that covers global commodity markets and the disruptive technologies driving the transition to a low-carbon economy. Thank you all very much for joining me here today. I'd like to start by discussing the dominance of far-left environmental activists. Extinction Rebellion and individuals such as Greta Thunberg have reached an international audience in conveying their message. Why did the left enjoy such success in their publicity strategy? Perhaps, Isabella, you would like to start. Yes, thank you, Luke, and thank you for having us on here. I think um, I think we should start by really breaking that down slightly because I think for the left and them being anti-capitalist as well. I mean, famous books such as End of Capitalism or End of the World, you know, they're very much anti-consumerism because that has meant resource depletion. And they have therefore been the most vocal advocates for the environment and for nature. However, as you said, criticisms of that have been, well, you know, they don't have very many practical solutions. Um, So I think, you know, if we're to look at XR and also Greta, um, you know, they have used very high profile tactics, but also they have solutions that many will not agree with. For example, Extinction Rebellion is, is asking those to create debt for their own personal debt 
um, to try and push banks to do more on the environment. I don't think that private in individuals should be taking on debt as a solution to the climate crisis where that is going to have a huge impact on their on their personal life. We should be, be able to have solutions that are creative and exciting and don't prevent people from actually um, owning issues or living as as they wish. So um, so yes, I think on that front, um, they have they have got a huge amount of media traction, but also the fact is that what they did at the Cenotaph, for example, I mean, what has that to do with with climate change? So I don't think that they have used they've used brilliant media tactics, but I don't think that they are going to bring a lot of the public with them. Um, in terms of Greta, well, I actually think she's absolutely remarkable. And she has sat there and said, follow the science. And she's absolutely right. We have the science now. And she has not tried to sit there as a teenager and say, I know all of the answers, but she's calling on those who do have the answers to implement them. And she has gained just brilliant traction all over the world. And she should absolutely be applauded for that. And what I would also say is when you look at those on the left and activist groups, everyone has a role in this sphere. So that's also a really important aspect of this. We need activists, we need the big environmental groups such as such as Greenpeace to push for this. They've got brilliant membership. So they absolutely have a role. But I think, as you say, we need to focus on these market solutions now and ensure that we get the right sort of media coverage. But just to sort of end on this point um, before I take up too much time, but we are seeing brilliant media coverage now and really balanced arguments. Sky News have got a brand new daily climate show. This is exactly what we should be seeing. So, you know, we, we've won the arguments and now we're trying to get it in, 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 into the public sphere and bring the public with us. Absolutely. I mean, the debates, as I said, changed from one about climate denial and, you know, whether there is climate change or not to what are now the best solutions. Um, Sam, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's <clears throat> I think that shift is is right. And I think that that probably also speaks to one of the factors why um, the left, I think, generally have tended to dominate the environmental debate. I think it's because some people on the right, and I think they've always been a minority, but I think they're an even smaller minority now, but have openly advocated scepticism of, of climate science. And I think that um, has meant that the right of politics generally has had this unfair association with, with scepticism. And I think, um, you know, that has meant that it's been harder for people, um, you know, conservative environmentalists to, um, you know, to get positive coverage for some of their ideas and some of their policies, uh, you know, and to be uh, treated on, on the same platform. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's a big part of it. I think we should also recognise that, um, you know, there is a need for some government intervention um, to tackle um, environmental issues. Um, you know, we have a problem with markets not properly pricing negative externalities. Um, it requires some government intervention to fix that. Um, I think there are less and more intrusive ways of doing that. There are market-based ways of doing that, um, creating new markets, for example, for, for new um, power capacity. Um, but I think there's no doubt that the left is sort of more instinctively comfortable with the intervention um, required to meet some of those challenges than people on the right. And I think, you know, this is where 
the role of the market environmentalists um, comes in is to sort of show to conservatives and people who maybe instinctively don't like the idea of government intervention that there's a way of doing this without compromising your principles. Um, so I think there is that kind of fundamental issue with um, with the environmental problem that, that has meant that um, it's tend to favour the left. And then I guess yeah, the final point I would make is that I do... Um, you know, I think the nature of the environmental movement has changed over the years as well and has become a bit more left wing in terms of the people that work within it. Um, you know, I think historically there the were these, um, you know, little platoons that people like Roger Scruton would talk about, these local community groups that would feel quite small C conservative in terms of wanting to care for their local communities and make them cleaner, greener places. Whereas now I think, you know, a lot of environmental charities, it is just a fact they are um, predominantly staffed by people from the left of politics. And I think that has meant a lot of environmental campaigning and policy arts have been skewed leftwards. So, um, you know, I think there's a real importance, again, for having these conservative um, leaning environmental organisations that can, uh, you know, put forward conservative solutions and can try and redress some of that balance, as well as, you know, encouraging conservatives to go and work in NGOs. I mean, most of the NGOs I know would, you know, desperately do want to employ conservatives. It's just that there is a, has historic, you know, recently, I think, become this sort of dominance of, of left-wing people within them. So um, I think that that has shifted to some extent the parameters of the debate. And William, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I think uh, good good points all. I think the, the bit that I would probably draw out a little bit more is that, that sort of historical perspective, which says in the 90s, uh, the 80s, the, in the early 2000s, much of the environmental discussion was actually about control. Control of emissions, control of, uh, you know, socks and knocks and acid rain and all of these sort of things. And actually what has changed over the last 30, 40 years is people have gradually realized that this is such a large challenge that it's not actually about micromanagement and control, it's actually about enablement and growth. You literally have to change the economy. And to do that, you have to have everybody on board, you have to have systems that enable a flourishing of an economy rather than a control of an economy. And I think that is something that's been dramatically seen through the international climate diplomacy. Um, if you go from the, the 1990s and early 2000s with the Kyoto Protocol, it was essentially a micromanagement of the economy. Um, then what you do is you move through the, the late uh, the, the teens, essentially, where you're seeing the sovereign state returning and recognition that actually this was about uh, growth and opportunity. It was not about shutting down economies. And so I think the challenge that the, the, the right or certainly the, the marketeers have, so to speak, has, is that legacy of language that built up through the 1980s and the 1990s, where everything was really around control and solidarity and so on, which, which actually the right and the marketeers are still struggling to kind of move beyond. So the language itself was dominated. The, the, the impact of that is not to be understated. Because if you frame the, the solutions, so many solutions which come to, to, to light in the language of the 80s and 90s, and, and that's, sort of, should we say, more left-wing language, anybody on the, the right and who has the belief in, in individual freedom and markets is naturally going to react badly to it. And as such, I think many of the solutions, which actually are market-based solutions, which have taken us uh, to you know, great progress. I mean, I'm thinking of of carbon markets, I'm thinking of clean energy auctions, you know, things that have revealed and traumatically changed the, the, and revealed the costs, uh, the declines in, in new technology, they're often hidden. 
Um, they're often not really recognized. They're not really appreciated as frankly, great successes for market-based solutions. And so I think what is emerging now with things like offshore wind in the UK is a recognition that, you know what? Market-based solutions, clean energy auctions in this case is a discrete example, have been and a demonstrable success basically and so this is where you, you see you know if we have the, the new sun correspondent who have, who's focusing on green so i think the points you're raising here is people are beginning to realize that actually you don't need this absolute control of things in fact it's antithetical to this flourishing that society is required to do to, to make this change so actually i'm quite excited by that you know the, the historical change over the last 40 years and how it's gone from being essentially dominated by control to actually us focusing on the flourishing do you think um, perhaps also the tactics employed by certain groups has an effect on their publicity i mean take for example extinction rebellion going back to them um only this week they were you know chipping away glass on a barclays bank and you know a, a couple of years ago throwing fake blood onto uh, the treasury building um, those sorts of tactics obviously gain huge media attention. So does that in some sort of way aid in their publicity strategy and the message they're trying to get across? Um, yes, I, I think it, it definitely does. I mean, yeah, there's no doubt that the media is drawn to those really high profile stunts um, and likes to cover them. Um, I think as Izzy was saying that I think what we've seen with that is that the it's caused the media not really to talk about the, the underlying issue of climate change and it's to become a debate instead about you know uh, protesting tactics and you know freedoms to protest and policing and so on um and which i think is you know and, and also as you said it's given the you know the cause of climate change a, a bad name is associated with um you know law breaking and so on in, in some moderate you know voters minds that will you know broadly could turn them off the the wider issue so yes i, I do think that that has had an effect and there's just by nature the media is is not uh, as interested in uh, sober detailed policy rich analysis um i do think this you know th it is getting better and lots of the um you know the tabloids and uh, on the center right are starting to cover climate in uh you know actually i think a very intelligent and sensitive way and you know similarly um you know the similarly the broadcast media so I'm, I'm optimistic that this is starting to change but yeah there's there's no doubt that the that high profile tactics grab grab short term headlines but i i do think it does long term damage to the to the cause so um we've also kind of um raised the point that pro market voices have largely been silent in the environmental debate thus far um but that, this obviously doesn't mean that pro market policies have been ignored i mean we've already discussed you know carbon pricing but also fishing quotas and privatized fishing rights these are all fairly common now the main issue obviously is um that pro market voices have failed to capture the hearts and minds in the same way that other certain groups have. Um, would you say that's a fair assessment, William? Um, yes, yes and no. Um, I think it's a, I think there are some fantastic voices who are market orientated. Um, my old CEO, Michael Liebreich, probably is one of the notable ones. Um, his, his, his thinking on this is foundational. Um, everything from the, the underlying nature of the energy systems and, and, and how that links into growth and the essentially a, a uh, pushing back on this uh, degrowth movement is so important for the the sort of the underlying philosophical underpinnings of actually everything on the, on the market based uh, side of things and everybody who believes in that um, uh, sort of that growth is possible growth can be clean um, so I, I believe but I, I sometimes feel like he's uh, an isolated figure um, he's not entirely of course there are many others 
you know, uh, Izzy has worked with with Zach Goldsmith uh, to a great deal, and, to, and he's been a, a fantastic voice, flagging the concerns and actually thinking about the the issues which are can be addressed in a, in a kind of uh, pro market uh, manner. But I do think the weight of discourse. Um, has been uh, a left-wing discourse. It has been focused on intervention, heavy-handed intervention. It has been focused on control. Um, and that's because, you know what? That's, that's the default easy thing to do when, you, when, you're, when you're just thinking about a problem. Well, typically people wanted to go towards more control. It actually takes a presence of mind and a calmness of spirit to actually think, actually, how do we leverage the best in humanity to, to go in the right direction rather than over control it and, and sort of micromanage it. So I think, um, yeah, more voices on this space uh, would be most welcome. Yeah, I'd just like to add to that. I think um, historically you would say that environmental problems were a market failure given the lack of market value. And um, I think now we're really seeing prices put on on each aspect of the environment which is so fun fundamental to understand it for, for those who might be you know more economically driven i mean look at the disruptor review you know this is a really fundamental piece of work that was done by the treasury and we have yet to see how that will be be implemented but you know to have the prime minister prince william David Attenborough at that launch. I mean, th this is a really major, major moment for the environment movement. So I don't think that should be um, sniffed at. Um, you know, to also look at the ONS recently, they said that UK coastal waters had a value of 20 billion pounds based on ecosystem services, carbon capture, flood defense, tourism. I mean, these are massive figures and I think this is really really important now to try and put this into context and also obviously our new agricultural system um, with environmental and land systems management um, this is going to be a major shift in how we how we price things how we look at the environment and I think these should be should be welcomed yeah, I'd just add a bit more on some of the politicians who um, I, I think have championed market environmentalism and some of whom have been part of um, SEN and our, on our network. Um, I think it's definitely true to say that there were uh, few in number initially, um, and you've got some kind of big greats of the movement like Oliver Letwin, Richard, uh, Richard Benyon, John Gummer, um, Peter Ainsworth, who sadly passed away this week, um, who was, uh, yeah, obviously a very leading figure in, in making these, some of these arguments many, many years ago. Um, I think that number has now uh, massively swelled. I mean, in the, the caucus, parliamentary caucus, which then um, supports and, and, and manages, um, you know, the numbers of MPs have gone from um, a few dozen, and a dozen or so initially to um, now over 100. Um, I think it is in the political mainstream now of the Conservative Party, and you've got you know some of the people that were in that initial caucus, um, people like Zach Goldsmith, Rebecca Pau, um, Vicky Ford, um, who are now in key positions in government, and you know and I expect to see that that trend continue, and people who've on the backbenches championed market environmentalist solutions um, advocate them from um, ministerial positions within government. So yeah, I, I do think it has changed, and I think that partly that's down to the um, 
you know, the, the reason people have felt more confident in backing these um, solutions and issues is because you know we have seen, I think, greater public support for environmentalism, particularly um, you know conservative voters. A lot of polling um, shows consistently that conservative voters, majorities of them, support action on climate change, support action to restore nature loss, and um, environmental policies. You know, some of the most um, popular policies that that went polled. So, um, you know, I think that has given politicians more confidence to to speak out and to to raise the profile of these issues and you know as you said in your introduction <clears throat> i think there's no shortage of successes to point out for market environmentalism but i think for a long time people maybe didn't feel emboldened um, to to champion them and to speak out um and i think yeah now, now we are sort of seeing both both the policy delivery and um you know and the vocal advocacy um which is great but obviously yeah lo lots more to do yeah going back onto kind of the policy delivery and that side of things uh, there's definitely a relationship between the rhetoric employed and uh, the messages conveyed and the kind of appeal of certain policies. I mean, take, for example, the Green New Deal, uh, you know, it's hugely prominent and it's hugely um, pro-interventionist. Uh, how does this kind of landscape of environmental debate that we currently have affect suggested policies uh, put forward by individuals and groups? Uh, Isabella, would you like to start? Yeah, well, I think that it's very important that we have a range of, of policy ideas and that we can debate them. And I think that having something like the Green New Deal versus, you know, for example, the Sen Manifesto, um, you know, is a is a really good comparison there because actually we we need we need to to spark debates. Um, I think part of the issue um, with Labour Party policy at the moment is that they don't really seem to have a clear line on this, especially on nature. Um, you know, so at the moment, um, I really don't feel like the Conservatives have got a big opposition in this space. And I think that main opposition is actually coming from the NGOs and they are really sparking this. So that would be my sort of my first point on that. Um, but I think, you know, the um, I think what you're seeing from major, major, major corporates and they've really um, sort of grasped this net zero line. And I suppose some could say we've got pledge fatigue from them in terms of what they want and what they are going to achieve but what we really need now is some policy direction for them to start trying to implement this so i think there's plenty of will of willpower there but um we're going to see some more some more policies from the government and we'll get their net zero strategy in september ahead of cop um and i think that will be really the main moment um for us to to compare government policy to the green new deal because so far all we've really had is the 10 point plan and we've also got the upcoming em environment bill um, which is a major piece of legislation and we need to see the office of environmental protection given proper independent scrutiny rights and long-term funding you know there are a lot of things that the government need to need to push on and to um give a lot more detail on but i think um at the moment, they are going in the right direction to be seen as the main voice in this space versus Labour. William, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, actually, there's something Izzy uh, mentioned in the, in the last sort of section when we we're thinking about the value and, and price of things. And it reminded me of actually uh, uh, Oscar Wilde, who said, 
So it's something like someone who, who a cynic is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And it's just as we begin to think about actually what we value um, and what people are willing to pay for, you begin to see these markets emerging. You begin to see, you know, the, the seabed side of things. So that was a fantastically interesting um, uh, piece that was put out. And I think that has been one of the sort of the, the critical elements in the last few years is people actually trying to think about what are the value of different aspects, sometimes purely reputational. You know, what is the value of my reputation? What is the value of goodwill from customers? And then it can go down to, you know, even more detailed things. And so I think that's perhaps the most exciting development. One of the, linking this to the EU side of things, I think one of the interesting potential aspects in the next six months is how that Green Deal begins to manifest itself when uh, the EU puts uh, or endeavours to put um, border adjustments into, uh, into things. So to what extent do they say, actually, the carbon intensity of my industry is better than the carbon intensity of yours, therefore I'm going to tax you on imports and I'm going to keep that money or not. Um, and that's where uh, scraps over the price and the value of things could potentially um, deteriorate um, the, the wider international uh, uh, scene. And so I, I think this, this aspect of, of putting a price on things and, and knowing the value of things is of such importance, but you then have to quite carefully think about the redistributive effects of that, because sometimes you can, you can end up in very ugly scraps and very difficult discussions about actually who has what, who's, who's got what, and, and so on. And I think that's probably one of the things to be very thoughtful about in the next six months is as you begin to put a value on things, actually who owns that, who, who is benefiting from it. And what do you think, Sam? Um, so, you know, one point I wanted to make on the wider environmental debate, and, you know, I do think to some extent some of the terms of the debate inherently um, favour left-wing solutions um, as, as the debate is currently construed anyway. Um, so, for example, I think um, spending, public spending, is often viewed as a kind of metric of um, environmental ambition. Um, so, you know, political party commits to spending a certain amount of money. Um, whoever pledges the most money for a particular environmental issue um, is, is sort of the winner. Um, I think that obviously that's going to favour parties that are more comfortable with high levels of public spending and taxation. Um, now, I, I don't think, I mean, I think we do need to spend public money in order to meet our environmental targets, but I think that money needs to be spent efficiently needs to be targeted on R&D on early stage deployment and it you know, needs to be helping to crowd in private private finance. Um, but I think you know, it's not the only way to deliver environmental outcomes. Um, and I think sometimes the, the terms of the debate um, you know, ignore the fact that it's actually you know, tons of carbon emitted saved that we're actually interested in. Um, and that you know, if you can do that by leveraging private finance and creating market market mechanisms like clean power auctions that um, get the private sector to finance and develop new um, offshore wind farms, then that's great. That means there's more public money to spend on, on other priorities. So um, I think that's that's one way in which um, you know the debate can sometimes get skews towards um, the left, which I don't think I think yeah it makes it hard for market environmentalists to to make their case. Um, the other thing I'd, I'd add on that is um, targets. I think I'm very pro targets. I think they can set a direction of travel for um, government departments. They can set a direction of travel for the private sector, they know what technologies um, will and won't be 
um, possible to use in, in a certain you know, number of years. It can uh, help to sort of avoid those stranded assets in, um, and, and wasted investments. Um, so I think it's they're very useful from that perspective. But there is, I think, a real onus on politicians to set targets that are achievable um, and, um, and feasible. And I think, again, there's a tendency with some of these um, more left-wing campaign groups to set or to call for unachievable um, targets. And I think, you know, the, I think, yeah, the people on the on the right and from a market environmentalist, I think, shouldn't throw out targets, but need to be clear that, you know, we need to meet, we need to meet them and we need to be clear about how we're going to meet them um, so that they're credible. Because ultimately, if we want to use them as a tool for getting private sector investment, then they do have to be, the private sector has to believe that the government will actually um, achieve them and deliver them. I build on one thing that you just said, Sam, which is about um, a piece of the sort of use of public money efficiently. I think one of the things that I've been, I don't know, uh, personally campaigning uh, on over the last few years is to think much more about um, essentially metrics and benchmarks for success. And it's so you, you focus more about the what the outcome needs to be and what the actual metric for that outcome is. Um, because so much of the, the debate has been, you know, how big is the budget that I'm willing to throw at them? And it's like, yeah, you know what? That's genuinely a dumb way of thinking about it. Like, it's probably the least intelligent way. It's a very catchy way, frankly, and everybody compares the size of their budget, right? Um, everybody likes to compare the size of their budget. Every media and news outlet likes to say, oh, big, big money here, small money there, therefore you're more important. Very few people actually focus on the outcomes. Very few people talk about the carbon intensity of the power sector. And yet gradually as those things become unavoidably obvious, which I think you were mentioning earlier, like there's a nice article on, in the BBC, was it yesterday about the, you know, the, the carbon intensity of the power system on the bank holiday weekend, 38 grams per you know, kilowatt hour or something like that, ridiculously low, probably even beating French nuclear, um, but, that's the sort of discussion we need is, is what are the actual metrics in these different industries that actually we're, we're trying to drive improvement on and we're trying to see improvement on, not about actually how big is my budget, which I think is a very tiresome uh, angle. Um, I would like to kind of um, look at one final area, which is um, how pro-market groups, whether that be the British Conservation Alliance, the ACC or whoever they may be, how do they make their arguments even more compelling, especially at a grassroots level? Um, I think one area that's lacking is almost the emotional argument, um, making you know the heartfelt case for capitalism. I think that's something that's really lacking at the moment. Um, Isabella, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, it's a really interesting point. And I think, you know, when you when you talk about the grassroots movement, um, ultimately, when you're trying to win something or win a an argument or a campaign, it is how to bring the public with you. But I think, as Sam said, we have already brought them with us. We've already won the arguments and now it's about solutions. So for me, I would say that um, link it to government priorities um you know do do your do your homework on this and show that your solutions are impactful cost effective and scalable and also talk about the export market now that's not just financial but also 
thought thought leadership it's really really important in terms of you know how can the uk lead on this so that's a kind of the lobbying 101 but i think also um there's a really good article in the times today about don't guilt trip so we need to be able to show that actually you can be a conscious consumer and you can do your bit but ultimately we cannot put too much pressure on each individual consumer because it's basically impossible and we have to make their lives easier and we have to create structures for them to all be able to make individual choices and individual changes and whether that's choosing where you get your pension from or your energy supplier these are the things that everyone can actually do and have a really big impact on um, I would also say in terms of communication, do not greenwash because you will get called out and you will lose credibility. And alongside that, to gain credibility, link up with these experts, link up with your local environmental groups. You know, they are the ones who really understand this. And I think from the emotional point of view, I know earlier I talked about market value. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I did environmental science at uni. I have always been deeply, deeply passionate about conservation. And for me, really, it was always that emotional link. Um, but for others, it's not always there. And I think that, you know, we really need to make that case that some things are worth saving and they may have very, very little monetary value. But how do you put a price on an ancient woodland? I mean, I think that's basically impossible. So there is a huge amount there to be done in terms of heritage and also social impact. It's not just about the environment, it's the wider socio-economic arguments, green spaces, clean air, what that does to your health. So I think um, always link those up too. And Sam? Um, so yeah, I think, I think there are a few things um, that we can do. I think, firstly, I think there's a, a credibility challenge with some in the environmental community that just don't think that market solutions can meet the, the scale of the challenge. Um, and I think, you know, which I do come up against. And I think um, there's a role there just for talking about and explaining how market solutions have actually driven some of the most significant environmental improvements we've seen. Um, so the, the landfill tax, for example, um, you know, has massively driven up recycling rates, um, but also driven down emissions from our waste sector, which is one of the, the highest performing sectors of the economy in terms of decarbonisation. Um, the carbon price support, which is our top up carbon tax on uh, in the power sector, similarly has helped the, the switch from gas, uh, so from coal power stations to gas power stations. And then we've already talked a lot about the, the clean power auctions and how they've driven down the costs of new renewables. Um, so I think, you know, together, those are some of the biggest success stories in terms of UK carbonisation, I think can be quite clearly linked to um, market based solutions. Um, and I think using uh, those case studies not to say that that's it job done um you know the market will solve the problem now but to say that if we design the right frameworks and we put the right incentives in place that the market can respond to the right price signals um, then the market can deliver change incredibly quickly um like you know amazingly quickly um and i think that is um the the definitely is, is, is a job job to do there in terms of um doing better pr for some of our um past success stories um, I think there's a need to be positive with on this agenda as well. Um, so I sometimes think we spend too long criticising things like the Green New Deal, um, which, you know, 
is bad. Um, it's not not how I would do decarbonisation, but I think, uh, and you know, there's a need to make sure we don't go down that route. But I also think we should spend most of our time talking about how we would do it, um, and that emphasis on on being positive as opposed to um, criticising the left, I think, is is really important. I think again, in terms of getting credibility with environmental groups, that is. Um, a big part of it, you know, they need to see us as bringing something positive to contribute to the debate, not just doing down other solutions. Um, and then, yeah, I guess finally, and it's related to Izzy's point, but, um, you know, uh, li linking in why this agenda is better for people's immediate day-to-day -day lives, as opposed to, say, left-wing solutions to solving it. Um, so I think, you know, there was some polling recently for asking how popular various um, sacrifices um, to people's lifestyle would be to solve climate change, which showed that, you know, flying less, um, et cetera, all kind of bond in terms of polling. I think one thing that market environmentalism can do, but it's potentially different from some of the other approaches, is that, you know, we're more about trying to create new clean technologies. Um, we're about trying to grow the economy at the same time as reducing emissions. Um, and I think, you know, therefore, there's probably less of that sacrifice involved in, in that approach. And I think that that's something that we can that we can talk about. Um, similarly, the, the kind of jobs and private sector investment angle, which um, has been you know, a huge part of the, the current government's um, way of talking about net zero and the template plan, which is all about how private sector investment spurred on with a bit of government seed funding can revitalize our industrial heartlands and, and places like Teesside and, and the Northeast. So um, yeah, I think rooting this agenda in, in those really uh, immediate concerns, I think often climate change is this, uh, you know, it is impacts that are being felt now, including in the UK, but it, it feels to a lot of people like a, a chronic um, problem that we can't think about all the time because we'd be exhausted. Um, so you need to find ways of making it a, a thing that is real to people's concerns now. And I think the good news is that it, it can be, um, you know, that the, the evidence now of, of how net zero investments might create jobs and, and you know, revitalise areas and do economic regeneration is is clear um, and is, is stronger all the time. Um, so, yeah, I think we just need to be, be better at, at making our, our, our arguments around that rather than getting too much into sort of, yeah, the kind of wonky uh, arguments about, about markets, um, which, which sometimes can sound a bit academic. And uh, William, what are your thoughts? No, I agree with everything that Izzy and Sam has said. I think the, the one thing that I would add is that we really need to look beyond the, the conventional language that is being used, understand the, the underlying problems, understand the solutions that are often market-based that are being used and that have been successes and that are the case studies, apply the, the principles that groups like SEN have come up with. The manifesto that SEN has come up with is, is a superb example of applying good quality principles and, and you know, if you think of a, a, you know, actually how you, uh, you know, align your thinking to some extent with those and that should enable people to really own the problem and then think about the solutions in a, in a fundamental way. So I think that would be my encouragement. There is a, a sea of opportunity here for progress, improvement, for growth, for a flourishing society and for a flourishing economy. Um, it really just takes a little bit of wisdom to see through the, the BS, if I can be honest, um, in the market, in the news, and actually then just say, okay, foundationally, I understand actually what is happening. Foundationally, I have some principles by which to operate, and therefore I can own this. And you know what? 
like uh, you know people in the market base uh, who, who think from a, a sort of a free market and a, a conservative point of view they love to own stuff they love taking responsibility it is they they will take responsibility for stuff it's it's in their blood basically so if they've got those pieces together then you know this whole thing will go uh, go, go very well I want to make a yeah a, a final point which was yeah I think the other really important angle to think about is is messengers as well like who is who is making these arguments and who is um arguing for these policies and I think you know we obviously try and at send try and find conservative politicians um to make some of these uh, arguments because they obviously particularly going to their views are going to resonate with them. Um, conservative voters but i think you know the work that bca does with students in universities and getting younger people um championing and um, some of these market-based solutions um i think is also really important and obviously those guys are going to be the kind of next generation of uh, of political leaders so um yeah encouraging more young people um and tapping into um yeah some of that youthful idealism that um greta thunberg obviously channels very well um which we, we talked about right at the start but from a a market-based perspective i think is, uh, is is a great idea and yeah i think bca doing some great stuff in that in that space i'd like to thank you all very much for what's been a really really interesting conversation i usually um, end these with asking any everyone for kind of concluding remarks Isabella, could you tell us more where we can find out about your work? Yes, thank you. Um, so you can go onto our, our website, Seahorse Environmental. Uh, we have clients such as Greenpeace, WWF, Ovo Energy, CCM Technologies and others. And, um, and then you can find out more about our all party group on sustainable finance from our website as well. We're doing some really brilliant work with cross-party MPs on how they can get involved and understand more about pension schemes and green bonds. So yes, thank you. And William. Um, I didn't realize this is a good advert, but I'm, I'll do it anyway. So I guess I'm here in a personal <laughs> capacity. Um, so frankly, I'm a little bit active on social media. Check me out. But frankly, reach out to me if you have interest. My the, the company BNF uh, BNF.com does superb work in this space, but then so do many others as well. So uh, lots of ways to to hook up. And Sam. Thank you. Yeah. So um, yeah, again, we have a website, send.uk.com. Um, check that out, sign up to our our mailing list. We'll send you fortnightly updates on uh, on all the different articles and campaigns that we're working on. Um, follow us on social media as well. We've got an Instagram, Twitter account, Facebook. Um, so yeah, do do follow those as well for more regular updates on, uh, on what we're up to. Um, but yeah, thank you for having me on. Thank you. Um, and if you'd like to learn more about the work of the British Conservation Alliance, do follow us online at www.bca.eco or on the Twitter handle at BCA underscore eco. Thank you all again, once again. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Green Market. Subscribe to our channels wherever you're listening to us to make sure you see every time we post a new episode.